So Melissa and I were just getting to Kennett back in 1995, coming the youth, was the youth minister there, and the first event we went to was at a Cherokee Village, a retreat they did every, uh, every August, and we were interacting with the kids, and a guy named Eric Mullins, who's now uh, an oncologist for uh, pediatrics in Cincinnati, Ohio, brilliant guy, he was playing a card game and invited me to join in, and the game was called Mao. Has anybody ever heard of this? It's, a, it's straight from the pits of hell is where this game came from. The devil brought it to humanity. And, and it, it, as he was dealing out these cards, you think I'm exaggerating. As he's dealing out these cards, everybody takes a hand. The goal is to end up with no cards at all. But you don't know what the rules are. Now, I've noticed lately that some at Valley View play this game, and I'm just telling you, keep that sin out of my life. Just wherever, if I'm, it, it's, it's this, it, and what he did was he started, we started the game and we were going around discarding and I couldn't figure out why are you discarding? What are you trying to do in this game? And when I asked a question, he'd give me more cards. And then when I would, when I would say, I, I, okay, so, and I would say a single word, he'd give me more cards. And I couldn't get rid of cards and I kept adding cards and the goal is to not have any cards. And it was just, it, it instantly sent me through the roof, right? I'm like, I don't understand. And finally, I had the whole deck of cards in my hand and nobody else could play. And I threw it at him and said, don't ever, ever ask me to play this game again. And I never have. You can't figure it out. You just, I guess by, I don't know who knows the rules and why can't they change them if nobody's actually got them written somewhere. It is so frustrating. I think this is kind of how the disciples felt about learning the way of Jesus. Learning the way of the kingdom. They kept hearing these words from Jesus that are so, they're so against everything you've ever heard in your life. You don't hear this stuff anywhere else. Turn the other cheek stuff. Love your enemy, nobody's saying that, and it's against the grain, it's against nature, it's against my default that I've grown up living in the world all my life with, and they kept hearing this, and they're trying to live it, but they can't figure it out. It's, it's just not, they can't quite reach it. So they're trying to figure out what's life in the kingdom, what's it gonna take to please Jesus, and they can't figure it out. And everywhere they go, they're arguing, who among us is the greatest? Who among us, which one of us is really grasping this better than anybody else? And they constantly debate it. Everywhere they go, who's the greatest? Who's the best? Who's the most likely to succeed? Who's the most improved apostle? And they can't figure it out. And so Luke chapter 22, one time, Jesus is aware of this conversation, but he never enters it. They think that Jesus can't hear them. But you know, for one thing, Jesus doesn't have to hear it to know what's going on. He's kind of like the son of God, right? And so he's constantly hearing it, frustrated that they're not getting his servant heart. And in Luke chapter 22, he enters the conversation. Right before this, it says they were arguing among themselves, who's the greatest? And Jesus said to him, he kind of says, I'm sick of hearing this, let me set you straight. The kings of the Gentiles, they exercise lordship over them. They make sure they know their authority and their position. Those in authority over them are called benefactors. They're the good ones, right? Not so with you. Rather, let the greater among you, the greatest among you, become the younger, and the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater? Who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table who's greater? He's kind of in control of the room. But I'm among you as one who serves. When you convert, when you experience conversion to the kingdom, it means an inversion of values. Conversion to the kingdom means an inversion of all the values that guide the world. It's crazy. So here's clue number one. He's going to give them two clues. Clue number one is 
Think about how the world works. Notice how the world works. It operates according to a certain standard. How people are evaluated, how people are valued, what people do, who's important, who's the movers and shakers, and who's just kind of like the people who are along for the ride. Notice how the world works. And the reason why this is important is we've been raised in the world. We've spent more time in the world than we have in the kingdom of God, and it's a default in us. It's, it's kind of how we impulsively act. We're raised in the world, we live in it, we have to master it, we interact with people in the world. It becomes so second nature and so automatic and so familiar, we don't even think about it anymore. And you've got to start thinking about it. Look at how the world actually works. And he says it this way, basically the people with power and authority control the people who don't have it. The ones with money set the standards and set the rules against everybody else who doesn't. That's how the world worked then. And by the way, it's how the world works now. We can change our clothing styles and call our money instead of denarii, we can call it dollars and cents, but it's the same way. And we learn this when we're in second and third grade. We, we go and we understand exactly who has the value, who's higher up in the hierarchy. We know how the world works, and we know where we fit, too. I mean, kids learn this early. Look at the names on their jeans. Look at the way they, they dress and what families and how much money they have that they're coming from. And that's who rules the world. That's who rules everywhere. That's how it works in our world. And it determines, it determines who we try to impress. It determines who we're going to try to choose as our friends, how we're going to evaluate and gauge people around us, how we're going to treat people, how we're even going to talk to them. I had this discussion at church camp with some kids. And it was a great class, and they were very honest. And one of them said, yeah, I know exactly where I fit. I said, how do you know where you fit? He said, I'm the one nobody listens to. He's the smartest. He, he had such great observations during church camp, but he said, I'm the one nobody listens to. They all listen to the more popular kids. They don't even listen to me. He knew exactly where he fit. And kids learn it early. They know how the world works. And those who are higher up, they love how it works. And those that are down here, they don't have a say in changing anything. That's how the world works. So clue number one is look around and instead of letting it be second nature and subconscious, make it conscious. Why am I, why am I judging this person this way? Why am I just casually disregarding this young person but giving total attention to this one? Pay attention to how the world works. That's clue number one. Clue number two is in the next line. Not so with you. That's not how it's to work in the kingdom. And I want you to say this with me. I want you to say those four words with me. And, and remember, you're talking to yourself. The you is you. You ready? Not so with you. While the rest of the world thinks this way about people, it's not so with you. I want you to be ready to say it when I point to you, right? This is how the world works. This is how everything works. This is how we're supposed to fit into the world. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, it's 
Not so with you. It's different from a, we've got to look at how the world works and then go, you know what? I'm not going to do that. The kingdom is countercultural. So he says the person with the greater power, the greater seniority, the more money needs to be the one who's servant over the others. That's how Jesus, Jesus says, I'm not the one who sits at the table and everybody serves. I'm the one who washes feet. You want to be like Jesus or you want to be like the world? And the church has to decide this. Are we going to be like Jesus or are we going to be like the world? Is there more world in the church or more church in the world because of us? Be careful with this because there's an awful lot of world among us and the way we do stuff. So he says, I want you, clue number one, look at how the world works. And clue number two is not so with you. Not so with you. We make a conscious, and it has to be conscious, because y'all, we are so programmed world to think and act and judge like the world. We are so, I'll give you an example. I want to flash a picture on the screen, and you tell me what story this is from in Scripture. Anybody know what story this is from? The anointing of David. You know this story. Samuel knows he's, he's anointing the next king. Saul has been rejected, and Samuel's going to anoint the next one. And he knows it's among David's boys, right? And so has all his boys there, except one who's off in a field being a shepherd somewhere. And he comes up there, and he sees the first one. He says, oh, this is it. Obviously, he is so handsome, chiseled, right? Arms like Wiley Stanley, Right? Just it's amazing, and, and he's just so, and he's so tall. Matt Hodge is tall. We're talking about a, a, this is a specimen, and so he's getting his oil up over his head, and God says, "It's not him." Here are the words. The Lord said to Samuel, "Don't look on his appearance or his height or his stature." Why does he say that? Because everybody does. Everybody looks exactly, that's exactly the standard everybody uses. 99.99% of the people would say that's the standard. And God says, not so with me. He does not say I'm not choosing him. He says, I've looked at him. I've examined his heart and I have rejected him. He's not just overlooking him. He's not just bypassing him. He has studied him. And rejected him, God says. He says, because the Lord doesn't see as a man sees. But he looks, who looks on the outward appearance? The Lord looks at the heart. This not so with me, God says. Don't you use your judgment to decide it's my choice and it's not so with me. And do you think he's saying to us, I want my people to be this way? I know this is going to come as a shock. Our entire culture will say to women especially, and I think it's true of men too, but we don't feel it as keenly. You've got to have a guy. You've got to have a guy and have a relationship status on Facebook in order to really have arrived. And women are feeling the pressure constantly. I've got to have someone. Now, you think I'm making this up? I've had this conversation so much in the last week at Harding, and they did that also with this, this married council, the couple that comes and does these marriage retreats, which we're going to have them, I think, in 2024 here. I'm excited about that. But they said the number one problem right now is it just seems like the culture is pressuring women. You are not complete. You are not fulfilled. You are not all you need to be until you've got some guy on your shoulder, on your arm. And sometimes... 
The church joins in and chimes in the same way. We're all trying to set people up with people. They need to be with people. Who says? And here's how we do it. Next screen. We're going to try to set up one of these college girls. Okay, we got college people. This is the time to set you guys up. So we bring them in. We all look at it. And guys, we all do this. Don't lie to me and say you don't. And if you want to lie, that's okay. You can lie in church, but you're, you're being sinful. But here's the thing. We look at everybody and we give them a world number. This young man from Newport coming to college here, he's probably an eight, right? He's probably an eight in the world. We know, you know, we know what the world says is handsome or whatever and really whatever. So he's a world eight, right? But we find Christian-wise, he's, he's an amazing Christian young man. He really is devoted. He's here every time, and he seems to be real. And so he's like a spiritual 16, right? Out of 10. I mean, that's a lot, right? Which number do we use when we try to set him up? We use the 8. We look around and say, okay, if we're going to set him up, we've got to make sure the girl's at least a 6, we can't go to a four or three. There's no way that can't be right. Can't be right. It's got to be. We don't really pay attention to the spiritual number. We pay attention to the world's value number. And if there's a girl who's an eight, if there's a girl who's an eight, we've got to find a guy who's a seven, eight, nine, ten. But he might be the spiritual equivalent of a postage stamp, negative one. That's okay. We can work on him. Can I tell you the one we should be working on is the spiritual number. That's the one we should be working on. But, but, but instead, in fact, I don't know that we should be working on anything at all because God has called some people to singleness and it's a great, it's a great vocation. But what I'm arguing is we are, we are so often doing exactly what Samuel did when picking a king. We're using all the worldly standards of what, oh, this is obviously what every girl's looking for. But listen, I think if we, we've got to find, and I'm not saying he has to be ugly but a spiritual giant, right? I'm not saying anything like that. But do you think marriages are caused more by using the world number or the spiritual number? I think that should be the most important one, and that's what God is saying and we trip over this when you're trying to decide at school who's going to be your closest friends and who you're going to try to hang around the most. What, what kind of values do you use? What factors? Are they worldly factors or spiritual ones? And I'm not saying they have to come to the Church of Christ eight times a week for you to consider having them in your friend group. I'm not saying I am saying, though, have you really measured the spiritual impact of this friend on you? And does that have any bearing at all on whether you will make them your closest, most impressionable friends in your life? Does that even factor in? Because while the world says this, not so with you. Not so. And this touches on so many things. The one with the most power holds the most sway. The one with the greatest talent or ability holds the advantages. The person that comes from the right family, the right look, the right connections, they pull the strings. 
How things work in the kingdom is the opposite of how things work in the world. And we know that the disciples were confused about this. And who, who, who blames them? We're here at the church. We have the advantage of the scriptures for 2,000 years. And we still struggle with this. Every single day of our lives, we're using worldly standards. And we're not even thinking about it. It's not to be so with us. We are the not so with you people. We're the ones that are not supposed to be held sway by that. When the disciples did finally get it in the book of Acts, they turned the world upside down. So Jesus said, you know what? You shouldn't murder people, but not so with you. You shouldn't even hate them. You shouldn't belittle them. You shouldn't disrespect them. Not so with you. You've heard it said in practice that you shouldn't cheat on your spouse, but not so with you. You don't even lust in the heart before you're married. You, you root out lust in your heart before you're married and after you're married, after you're married, and all your life. That's what we're after. Not so with you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus said, wasn't not so with you not so with you you're supposed to love your enemies even when the driver cuts you off and slows down and you want to let him have a piece of your mind by riding his bumper for a while not so with you that's not the way you work when your wife disrespects you in some way you feel and that annoys you and you think you have the right to act with contempt back at her not so with you and that girl is mean and she floats out mean things about you on social media and you're just afraid of the impression that will make and you want to find out ways to get back not so with you that date, that date behavior that the entire world practices. Everybody goes for this date behavior, but you are a child of God, and it's not so with you. And when you disagree with someone, you're hating them, not so with you. Even people we have a big disagreement with over lifestyle or doctrine, we don't hate we don't disrespect, we always love and treat with great dignity. That's the way it is with us. We've had a lot of young people especially, but a lot of people who've chosen to follow King Jesus and be immersed in this last year. And I'm, a, I'm looking at this and I'm wondering, is baptism becoming a socially acceptable kind of behavior? Everybody goes on Facebook and we put it on there and everybody, hey, and all the likes and stuff. And I'm wondering, are we adding a, a, an intellectual rider to our brain that said, now I believe Jesus is Lord of my life, but then I go on to living like I always have. It seems to me with the more baptisms, the world should be changing more. With 20 new Christians in our school districts, the school should be changing more. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying... It is not just an intellectual decision we're making. I've decided to make Jesus Lord. No, it changes your entire life. You're a not-so-with-you person now. It's not like the world anymore. It's going gonna, it's gonna to start going counterclockwise because you enter the stream going a different route. What's that look like? And I, I thought about this, a way to illustrate this and I decided to do it with basketball. This was at church camp and I haven't thought about it since then. But we're going to use basketball that's two people you don't even know. I'm just letting you know the sport, but let's put some people you do know up here. There, you know who this is? Anybody know who this is? He looks vicious on the court, doesn't he? That is Evan Cossie. Where are you? Evan's back there. Yeah, yeah, and he looks vicious too. Look at that. I would hate to meet that on a court, right? Basketball. 
You know what the point of basketball is, right? If, you, if you're a basketball fan, and if you're a sports fan and you like competition, you're going to hate this illustration. It's just going to bug your brain because you can't stand. It almost sounds like a trophy for everybody position, and I can't stand that either. But we just got to pretend because I can't really come up with an illustration that bugs you like it needs to bug you about this not-so-with-you identity you have. So this is the best I could come up with. Basketball's goal, you know this, is that the players do well, score lots of points, we outscore our opponent, we come off the field as clear victors and we celebrate the win and we go and we enjoy that. Let's just pretend. I'm going to set up three new rules. And again, if you're a competitive, pretend, church, pretend. You just got to act along with me, okay? Because I'm not asking anybody to change those Naismith rules. Here's one. One main goal for the game is to have everybody play equal time. You know what that means, right? That means you're probably not going to win the game because everybody knows you've got to play your best out there to win a game. So we've already given up. Okay, we're not worried about the score. Now that's going to bug you, but again, pretend, church, pretend. That's what I'm saying. So the one goal, have everybody play equal time. Number two, this is the biggest one of all, to have everybody on the team score. And number three, to have everybody on that team fully support each other when they're in that game. Now, I thought this was going to be novel, but we had one guy. I'm not going to tell you his name, but he's got the longest white hair I've ever seen of an older person. Anyway, so he was in early service this morning. He came up to me and he said, I played on a team where our coach said, here's the win tonight, guys. Hold the other team to less than 100. He said, we lost that game every way you can imagine. It was 110 to 40. That was bad. Here's the other one. Here's the other. He was playing and he was a terrible scorer. He could steal the ball like nobody else, but when he got the other end, he messed up the layup every time. But he did. He said, in a game, I stole it, I went down, I got a layup, and I scored, and our team went nuts. Because that's the only two points I ever scored my entire career. Yeah, so there's some people that can relate to this. If we played this way, you've got the rule. You're not trying to change the rules for everybody. Remember this. You're just changing. for your, You're the coach, and you're saying, this is our win right here. This is the rules we play by. Everybody else will play by the other ones, okay? Everybody else is going to play according to this. You're going to play according to this, and here's how it goes. They get in a game. The first half is pretty good. They've got their best in there, and they stay up with the team pretty good. Third quarter, uh, the score gets away as you put other people, giving them equal time in the game, and it gets away from you, and it's obvious you're not going to win this game. You're down by 40 in the middle of the third quarter. You get to about two minutes left in the game, and the weakest guy you've got finally scores two points in the game, and the entire gym goes nuts on your side. The other side's going, what in the world? The team is going, what are you doing? You're getting slaughtered. This is embarrassing. Their fans are going, what are you doing? And everybody on this side is going crazy because they're playing by different rules. That is exactly what your life is supposed to be like. You are playing by different rules than everybody else. You're a not-so-with-you people. If we did that, again, keep pretending with me, if we did this, what would it change? Number one, it seems to me, it would change what we applaud and what we celebrate. 
Everybody on this side was going, why are you all going crazy? Why are you all rejoicing and celebrating over this? You don't understand what our rules are. You don't understand what it is we're going for. This young person right here just made a huge, huge decision about what to do on a date and nobody else gives a care, but God loves it and God's people applaud. When are we gonna applaud what's important? They won't get that anywhere else. So the rich young ruler comes up and the apostles, the apostles are just like, wow, here's a guy. For him to be rich, he must be right with God. Boy, he's going to be good for the movement. What can he bring to us? Oh, my. Jesus sends him packing. He applauds different things, y'all. He applauds different things. The Beatitudes, you know why we struggle with trying to interpret the Beatitudes so much? The Beatitudes are a list of lifestyles God applauds. And we find them weird. We can't even understand them. But it's the lifestyle God rejoices in and wants to see in his people and applauds that no one else does. That's the problem with the Beatitudes, right? Who gets their, who gets their picture in the paper for being righteous? We applaud and celebrate different things. We value and strive for different things, which produces different decisions in us. When I'm striving to do this, and it's totally against what the world does, my decisions will be different. So we have these sections of Scripture about women. It applies to men, too. It's just, it's just women who would dress up in ornate clothes. Man, the flashy jewelry, and they do stuff with their hair that for that culture showed how affluent they were, that showed just how much money they had and how much prestige, and they'd go to church, and they would just rattle with their jewelry, and they'd have flowing clothes. Their immodest dress wasn't our immodest dress. Their immodest dress was trying to show the world just how important and powerful and influential they were, and they wanted to go to church where most of the people weren't, and they wanted to show off who they were, draw attention to themselves as important people. And God says, you know what? That's not what I applaud. What I want is you to be known as good, spiritual, godly character filled with good works. Let that be what's known about you. Let that be what's drawn attention to your character, not your body and not your socioeconomic status. We value different things from the world, but when's it gonna look like that in the kingdom of God? When's it gonna look like that in the church? And then... We would define things differently. Success in the world, the good looks, the great job, making lots of money, and that's what everybody goes to college to get a, uh, to get a degree that will make them lots of money and be famous or, or be most beautiful in your class of people. But not so with you. Paul says it's contentment with great gain, godliness with contentment. In other words, I am pursuing what pleases God, and I'll be content in this world that says I shouldn't because I should pursue other things. You know what godliness with contentment is? I'm willing to pursue God's definition, and I'll say, forget the world. I'm content just like this. You know how rare that is? People who are calm and at peace with the fact that I'm right with God right now, he's pleased with me. And no, I don't have all the trappings that the world says I should have. But let me give you a verse. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to rule the world 
to absolutely win the world. The world says, well, we down to, yeah, but you know what? He gains the whole world and he forfeits the next one. That's the decision you have. How serious is this? We're to be not so with you people. I am not interested in changing the rules of basketball. I can't imagine how boring it would be to watch NCAA final tournament with these rules. But the challenge every single day of your life living in this world is no less crazy than that. Living by God's rules rather than the world's. Saying, I'm a not so with me, people. When you look in the driver's seat, when you look in the rearview mirror and you want to say that to that driver, you want to go out and do that, and you, want to, and you look in that mirror and you say, not so with you, Spencer, not so with you. You're not going to do that. It's not what kingdom people do. Look in the mirror when you start the day. I know I'm going to chase, I'm going to chase those things that I'm wanting to chase. I'm going to chase more money. I'm going to chase this and prestige and all. And say to the mirror, not so with you. And I want us to be a not so with you people. Valley View Church of Christ, let's try and strive to be a not-so-with-you people. Know how the world works and make yourself bring it to your conscious. That subconscious, that standard typical assumptions you make about the way everybody does, bring it to the surface and say, what am I thinking? It's not going to be so with me. That's the kingdom of God, and it's going to take the Holy Spirit to do that. Lots of patience with yourself. Lots of persistence. I can't imagine. It's every nook and cranny of my life. But I just tell you, if you choose to go for the world's definition, you go for the, you're, going to continue, you're going to choose the world's fate. And what does it profit a man to gain that world and lose the next one? Go ahead and live by the next one while you're living in this one. And when you die, it'll be the most natural transition you can imagine because you've already chosen to live that way. If there's anyone who needs to respond, I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't. We want everybody to be a child of God. I want everybody to say, Jesus is the king of my life and live like it. But I'm going to tell you this. You can't keep going and thinking like you've always thought. This move you make changes everything. And it becomes a thing that permeates your brain. When you come forward, if anybody comes forward to be baptized this morning, I want to tell you what's going to happen. From now on, you've got to say every day the rest of your life, what's the world telling me? Not so with me. And if you're not ready in principle at all to be willing to embrace that kind of life, don't ever go forward until you're ready to accept that. Challenges and all, and you will fail. Listen, you will fail. We are all, we are not going to master this before we're dead, but we're going to try. And this morning, if you're... If you're a not-so-with-you person, I hope you'll sing with me, and we'll encourage anybody to embrace that. It's going to be the greatest challenge of your life. But let us be a not-so-with-you people. There's lots of people sleeping right now, lots of people running around doing a regular life, and you said, not-so-with-me. It's early Sunday morning. I'm going to get myself ready. I'm going to go up the hill. I'm going to meet with other believers, and I'm going to have a not-so-with-you kind of morning. And I'm asking you to make the rest of the week the same way, a not-so-with-you week. If anybody needs to respond, make it known as we stand, as we sing together.